production. Gary Goro is a Vedic meditation practitioner, Ayurvedic teacher and mind coach at the football team, the GWS Giants. His teachings show us that we can find peace through meditation and inquiry. And by forming a sacred relationship with ourselves, we can hold space for the best in others. In our conversation, Gary reflects on the moral and spiritual convictions that have driven him and what he's teaching and still learning about what it means to be human. Everything that disturbs us or unsettles us can ultimately bring us into a deeper understanding of ourselves. So I always go to that. Okay, what can I do? What's going on in me? Let's attend to that first, clear that, do that work. And then when you return to that thing that was giving you struggle of some kind, you've noticed its power's diminished. It's really just an event, but it just has no gravity anymore. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Gary Goro is a spiritual and meditation teacher to some of the world's greatest athletes and entertainers. He is also one of my own personal teachers and friends. Our conversation explores many things, what holds people back from living a life true to themselves, the importance of exploring our shadow side and what's required to transcend our past, move forward and ultimately live our best lives. When sharing space with Gary, time stops and the present moment is felt in all its splendour and love. My hope is that this conversation inspires you to take control of your life and find the beauty that exists in yourself and the world around you. I am very blessed to interview a range of guests on this podcast, but it's an extra special day when I get to interview one of my friends, Gary Goro. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a an honour. Never thought this day would come. <laughs> <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. Gary, you are a Vedic meditation teacher as well as a spiritual teacher and you also follow an Ayurvedic lifestyle, which is what you introduced me to. Tell us what drove you to this way of being. Yeah, I think I've always had like a, an orientation towards the mystical right from a really, really young age. And I didn't have a guru or a teacher. Like in, in other cultures, you know, there's just this appreciation that there there is this sacred dimension to life and it's celebrated and venerated and it's something which is incorporated into what you should aspire to connect with as a human being. So I feel like in our, our Western culture, that's that's not really part of the fabric. It's becoming more so. But say you, you grow up in India, for example, there's temples on, you know, every street and, you know, there's, all, there's this infusion of, of divinity and material life and, you know, there's this, the unseen is revered, you know, this idea of there's a special force that's present in life. And so I guess there's part of me which was seeking that right from a young age before I knew what to call it or how the, this thing called life was structured and worked. So I've always been someone who was interested in, I guess, in matters of spirit. And, um, 
yeah, my mum fostered that in us. She went on her journey and I guess mine began in, er- in earnest once I basically got to a really acute stage of just feeling like like I was stressed out, miserable, didn't really feel my life was worth living anymore. I got to, you know, it's that place most people get to where they're just burned out, dejected and, and, and lost. So I was, I was quite lost. And then... Um, there's part of me that just knew I, I have to create a practice. I have to deepen my knowledge and, and really pursue that longing that I let go of, you know, at a young age. So I guess it was the the, the, the pain and the misery that, that made it me want to um, get serious about it. The dark night of the soul. A lot of us have, have been through that. Ayurvedic practices are obviously a big part of your everyday life. How did you get into finding Ayurvedic practices and Vedic meditation. Yeah. So if we think of like, um, imagine a, a big tree, you know, it's got a huge trunk and then it sort of rises up into the atmosphere and have all these branches, has all these huge branches and then they have sub-branches and then they have sub-branches. So we would say the Veda is the tree and then there's all different limbs and branches which connect to different aspects of Vedic knowledge. So one of them would be Ayurveda, which is the science of life, health, longevity, healing, and how you keep your body, mind, consciousness vital. And so they, um, yeah, there's a whole wonderful science which is just vast and, you know, inexhaustible. So I I started meditation first and then somewhere along that journey I was getting very deep into, you know, the the knowledge around consciousness um, and all those psychological aspects and all the metaphysical aspects. But I just realised, oh, my God, I know zero about this body. I actually don't even know what happens to the food after I swallow it. I don't know what my organs do and where they are in my body. I knew nothing about, like, just the, the magnificent miracle that I was living in. So I thought, that's clearly a problem. I've got to do something about that. Um, so I just started diving into Ayurveda and started discovering all this wonderful practical wisdom that as I started to incorporate it more and more into my day and into my life, it was enhancing just how I was feeling within myself, but also it was complementing my other deeper spiritual practices because really they go hand in hand, you know, we're, we're body, mind, spirit. I know you obviously follow all of the practices, but what are some of the ones that have really shifted your way of being? Yeah, um, there's... With Ayurveda, yeah, it's such a a vast system of knowledge. But the thing that I love about it is it's wonderfully practical. It's not... Like often when we get into start diving into health, it becomes so complicated and so technical. It's almost like you need a PhD in chemistry to be able to understand like how any of these things are having an effect or how they work. Whereas Ayurveda is very different. It, it, It is complex as you dive deeper into it, but it can be just appreciated on this very superficial level. So I think the understanding of the effect of the seasons on the body, understanding different body types, different constitutions, and understanding that like the blueprint for our experience is to be vital, to be healthy, to be, you know, happy and radiant and, and full of, you know, zest for life. That, that's like just the blueprint for what a human being should be experiencing on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. But then there are things that come and disturb and create imbalance. 
So Ayurveda is very good at understanding how you correct those imbalances, whether it be with food, herbs, um, changing a routine, your lifestyle, adjusting your health regime, like your, your exercise regime, etc. Um, so one of the key things that I've taken from Ayurveda is the element of food. Foods, everyone knows food, food's important. Like it's, it's, you know, it's part of the Hippocratic Oath as you become a doctor in the, the Western paradigm, you take this oath to do no harm. And, uh, you know, the Hippocrates said that um, let food be thy medicine. But several thousand years before that, Ayurveda said the exact same food thing, that food, food is medicine. And what's more important than food, however, and this is a really unique Ayurvedic concept, it doesn't matter so much what's on the plate, but it's more important as who's in the chair, meaning who's eating it. What state of consciousness are they in when they're eating it? If you're stressed out, emotional, you shouldn't eat at that moment because you start to basically take and send that emotion further into the physiology. Um, But what's more important than that is how you digest it. So I mentioned this, uh, I think, when we we chatted one time. Ayurveda said if you had to choose between perfect food and poor digestion or great digestion and poor food, you would always choose the digestion. So the, the understanding Ayurveda has is that What's central to your health and well-being at the centre of that is your agni, your digestive fire, Mm. your ability to process, metabolise your food. It was one of the things that I think we're all victims of in our modern culture is we love trends, we love new things. And you can see like every almost quarter or every six months there's like this new diet, this new thing, and you could just rally through all of them, whether it's the Atkins diet, the paleo diet, whether it's the vegan thing or it's the carnivore diet or whether it's the, ve- you know, full vegan or vegetarian or lacto-vegetarian and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. So with Ayurveda, it's different. It recognises that depending on where you live in the world, <clears throat> what food is available to you, that's going to determine your diet. What body type you have will determine what food you should be bringing into your body. And more importantly, you should be fostering your agni, which your digestive fire is said to have four different states to it. It can be too high, meaning the food that you eat and you try to digest gets burned up too quickly so the nutrients aren't absorbed into the body in the way that they normally should be. So you start to get malnourished through your digestive fire being burning too high. It can be too low, meaning the food that you consume doesn't get digested properly and then it becomes toxic in your body. And then... It can be variable. It can be good some days, weak at others, and it changes, you know, week to week, month to month, day to day. And what we want is the summer agni, the balanced agni, that's strong and stable. It's interesting, like, when, it, when, a, when I feel like having, you know, studied and lived at the ways of Ayurveda for a long time, the moment I feel an, an imbalance creeping into my system, I just attend to it straight away. And often we don't know how. Like I was with my kids the other day and both of them were just, one was a bit more sick than the other one was a bit coffee and the other one had a sore throat. And, and anyway, <clears throat> once I gave them back to their mum a week later, I got it in my throat. And the moment it was there, I'm like, okay, <clears throat> I've got to target this. And so I started to go through all the Ayurvedic protocol of what you do when you have a sore throat. And then it migrated from my throat and I, I triumphed over it, uh, over it. It was like one day it got me 
and then it went somewhere else. But I'm kind of third day in and, I, and my body's like on the rebound really quick. When you get an imbalance, when you get an illness right at its, you know, the beginning, it's easy to overcome it. Whereas when something gets more established, you've got to kind of ride it out. And so there's ways to, you know, support your digestive system, which then supports your immune system. So I think with Ayurveda, the, the most important thing is just to study the, 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 the impact and the power of, of your digestion. And the more that, you know, science is evolving, the more we're realising it's the microbes that are in our gut that we're actually feeding and then they feed us. They break down our food. They're so pivotal to our health and well-being. So, so much of it comes back to, you know, the, the our gut. Our gut's the, the centre of our health. So what were the practices that you used to get over your flu? Yep, so it was in my throat, <clears throat> pretty hard area to get to. Um, so I was doing inhalations with this special medicated Ayurvedic um, oil. You put it in a steaming pot of water and then you inhale it and you breathe it deeply into your body. I was taking um, armor force and I was salt gargling um, modified my diet to make sure my food was um, just very easy to digest and more liquid. And so <clears throat> when you look at Ayurveda, the, it identifies that there's vata, pitta and kapha. This is probably the first time people are hearing these things. Um, but these are different attributes of the physical universe and certainly our physical constitution. So it's said that the world has five elements that operate within it. Earth, water, fire, air, and space. And so these five elements combine to create the three doshas. And so water and earth combine to create kapha. Fire and water work together to create pitta. Air and space create vata. So each person will have a constitution which includes all these three elements, but generally in different proportions. So you'll have a lot of pitta and a little bit of kapha and maybe, you know, a bit more vata or something, whatever it may be. <clears throat> and so the AVA concept is at the time of um, you being formed in the womb when the sperm fertilises the egg, your constitution in that moment is determined and this becomes your prakriti. This is your birth nature, your constitution. And then you're born into the world and you go through the process of life and living and you go through different seasons and you go through different experiences, etc. And you go through different stages of life. And in, the, in that journey, those, the, the doshas, which is the vata, pitta and kapha, can, can change, can get out of balance. Mm -hmm. So right now in Australia, we've just moved into a very vata period. We've moved out of summer, which is pitta, which is very hot. And you notice when, when summer, we're always seeking the ocean and cooling down because we overheat. If you're a cold person, you love summer. If you're a hot person, you feel really uncomfortable in summer. So we've just gone out of summer, a pitta period, into autumn. And it really struck here the other day. It sort of seemed like the season arrived a bit late, but all my skin started to get really dry. And then people started to notice all these respiratory challenges and all these other things going on. And so the season started to impact us because we're so tied up in those rhythms of nature. Yeah. So um, what you need to do, for example, when you have a kapha disorder is different things when you have a vata disorder. And sometimes you have a, a vata cough, which is very dry because qualities of vata 
dry, fast, mobile, cool. And then kapha, which is earth and water, you look at how that behaves. It's like mud, it's heavy and it's sticky. So a kapha cough is more phlegmy. And so often people think, oh, it's just a cough. You do this for it. In Ayurveda, there's so much subtlety that you need to be aware of to treat, you know, a cough properly or whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, this felt really fiery in my throat, <clears throat> dry and fiery. So then I had to treat it. And I used Manuka honey, actually, to, to penetrate. And I was doing um, lemon ginger tea once the tea cools down because you never heat honey as you would have learned recently. Yes. If you heat honey, it becomes poison for the body. And no one knows that except the, the system of Ayurveda. So yeah. people stop putting honey in your hot tea because it's not a good idea. Let it cool down a bit first. So, yeah, then the Manuka honey did its magic. And then my throat, it was the worst pain I've ever had in my throat in my entire life. Wow. And after a day of just doing, doing those simple things, inhalations, drinking warm water, monitoring my diet, taking a few herbs and the manuka, and then it, it basically lifted. You know, I felt the mild ache and pains yes. in my body, and, but they're only soft and then they disappeared. And then it migrated. Now it's just become, I got a bit of um, a runny nose. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, I think with, with wisdom, you can make something that would normally take potentially, you know, a week to get over, just a few days and... Sometimes it might be several weeks um, to get over mm. something for some people. So Ayurveda is just really about maintaining balance, just living with awareness and just paying attention to how you're feeling, the times of the day, the seasons, and moment to moment just adjusting yourself, just course correcting. Yes. And so it's more promoting self-awareness and that connection of body, mind and, and the inner being, of course. You introduced me to one of my favourite things now, which is tongue scraping in the morning. <laughs> I just, it's like the easiest thing to do. And I just, I love it. I feel so clean after I've done it. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and what, what it actually does to your body? Yeah, so Ayurveda recommends like there's this, this routine that someone should follow every morning. And there's, in fact, you know, daily routines, seasonal routines, etc. And some of them are absolutely uniform. They don't change. doesn't matter what stage of life you're in or who you are, what body type you've got and all of that, whether you live in China or you live in, you know, Czechoslovakia, it's the same. So one of the morning routines is you, you basically, upon rising, you know, you would get out of bed and you would scrape your tongue. It's one of the first things you do. You'd, and on your tongue, it's one of the detoxification pathways so we, we detox in many ways through breathing, through defecating, urination, through sweating. And on the tongue, during the night, your digestive system is, is purifying, releasing toxins. And so they surface on the tongue. You basically, they get ex, ex, extruded. And in Ayurveda, you would take a scraper, which is simply like a, a little implement. It looks like kind of a flat, curved little spoon type thing that you present to the back of your tongue and you scrape forward. And what it's doing is it's, it's pulling and scraping away all of that amma. Amma is the toxins which are accumulated in the body. And from an Ayurvedic perspective, amma is one of the seats of disease. So those toxins block the flow of intelligence in the body, but also they become the breeding ground for bacteria and other things. And so you, those toxins that are coming on the tongue are actually throughout the whole body. You know, a lot of people do detoxes these days. I did a juice yeah. detox for a week or whatever it may be. So Ayurveda would more say you didn't bring more toxins into your body and potentially you just move them around a bit. 
because getting toxins out of the body, it, it, there's, a, there's a real science to that. Ayurveda does have an answer for it, but just doing daily maintenance is really important. So every morning you wake up and you scrape the tongue and you'll get all this yucky gunk off your, off your tongue and then you, you can't ever not do it again once you've started. Oh, you can't. It's, it's the best. It is literally the best thing ever. And, you know, you can buy tongue scrapers and you go into any of the beautiful Ayurvedic websites or health food shops or whatever. It is it's so easy and it makes you feel so fresh. Yeah. And one of the other things, like the tongue is one of the ways that you diagnose an illness or a disease or imbalance in Ayurveda. You have different methods you can look at face structure, you can look at the eyes, iridology, you can look at the fingers, the fingernails, and you can read the pulse, you can look at the body itself, and you can do palpitations and figure things out. But you can also just look at someone's tongue, and that will give you insight into what's going on with all the different organ systems of the body. So when you put out your tongue, and if there's like fusion marks and, you know, a deep crack down the centre, that would typically mean like emotional problems going on when there's all those cracks. When you have a curvy tongue on the outside, it means malabsorption. Um, And different parts of it relate to different organs. So when you're scraping the tongue, you don't want to be too like strong on your tongue. But what it's doing is it's stimulating those organs. It's sending, like it's conducting intelligence through the channels of the body because that meets the network of your different organs. So it's just waking them up. It's cueing them for activity. So it's a good way to just mildly and gently stimulate your internal body as well while you're scraping your tongue. Amazing. Gary, our minds are so incredible and we can use them to have heaven on earth or be put into jail. How does one use their mind to cultivate a beautiful existence? I think it's very simple and you just summarise it, you know. There's that choice of heaven or hell. And, you know, often it comes by conscious design or it becomes by unconscious design or you could say neglect. So I believe, you know, human nature is that we aspire to experience heaven and we're encoded for that. Like no one gets joy out of being stressed out and miserable or being sick and unwell or feeling really negative and depressed. Like, no one aspires for that state. And it's because it is so against the grain of our nature. But the challenge is when, you know, you're on this planet which is so interdependent and interconnected, you know, just as we chatted off air, like up here we had six six weeks of, like, pretty much constant rain. I've never seen so much water in my life. And I just noticed towards the end of it, and there was a lot of us up here feeling the same way, like... I love you, Rain, and I love natural cycles, but, man, I'm seriously over this because yeah. the weather, it does impact us. You know, that's why we put people in solitary confinement in darkness just to, just to punish them. So what that's really saying is that there's this inbuilt set point that as human beings we want to experience a particular quality of life. And what we don't realise is, is such a key determinant of that isn't so much the weather, but it's how we think, it's our inner invisible world. And that's the challenge that we have with the mind is it's not like someone's iron levels that you can measure or someone's blood pressure that's very easy to determine. Like how do you determine someone's consciousness state or the structure and the functioning and all the qualities and all the, the nuances of their mind? You know, it's, 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 what, it's more of the, it's a challenge, more challenging art. But I feel the simplicity is for that being to just get very, very clear about 
what do I want to be experiencing in my everyday life? Yes. Make that determination, set that intention, and then it becomes really easy because you notice when you drift from that, you're just correct and you get pulled away by life or your own habits and then you learn to just come back again. But you have to have something in your core being and understanding that this is who I am, this is what I'm about, this is what I aspire to be more of each and every day. So I believe you have to cultivate the mind in a very consistent way and you have to have, you know, a target or a goal in your awareness. And then you can get into all the subtleties and the detail of that, of like it has to, you have to experience it as being formed, you know, so you can merge with it rather than constantly chase it. But you get clear on, you know, what, what am I about? What do I want to be experiencing? Yeah. And it's one of, the, one of the ways I start with people is we remove interference first, get rid of all the obvious stuff that's just leading you to ruin in subtle ways or in very obvious ways, you know, working too much, whether it be, you know, 60, 70 hours a week, it's getting too much, um, or drinking too much alcohol, having, you know, a full bottle of wine after work each night, or abs- not abstaining from exercise when you should be, you know, you should, or whatever it may be. Like people do really obvious stuff that they just don't own up to or don't sit back to go, okay, how, what, how am I interfering? What are the patterns of ruin that I'm cultivating? And once you let go of them, you feel this surge. Yes. Like amazing, like say to someone, oh, I feel like shit. Okay, well, how about we just, we just pull back on you having all this alcohol every night? And you see them a week later, I feel amazing. Can't believe it. Well, fancy that, you know, you stop loading your body and with all this stuff, you start to feel better. So I'd say you start to remove the obvious stuff first and then you transition into, you know, getting creative. What do you do in your life if you've had an experience? So it's nothing, you know, not like alcohol or something like that, which you can take away, but it's an experience. Maybe it includes someone and it really upsets you, but it's that balance between knowing what your true nature is, but then also having a situation that may have occurred or is happening in your life to then try and float back to that happiness, but then finding that situation quite intense at the same time. People find it hard to just you stop thinking about it and, and move on to whatever they're doing. Yeah. How do you deal with things that rise up in your life that get you down? And I'm glad you acknowledge that that still happens for me because a lot of people think, you know, this guy's a teacher and this and that, so he's exempt from all this stuff. I know, I know that I've interviewed enough gurus to know that everyone is human as well. Yeah, and it feels like the lessons never stop and the challenges never stop no. coming and nor does the growth because end of growth means decay. So it feels like if, you, if you're on this planet and you, you're here and you're, you're living, life's going to say evolve, my friend. And that will come generally by way of contrast and challenges, etc. So what I've come to appreciate is, is that whilst, you know, we were saying there's other interferences that are pretty obvious, but the interference just becomes subtler. So rather than being a physical, material, tangible thing that you're doing or emitting, on a psychological level, there is some way that you're negating the flow of life. 
And that's when the structures of the mind need to be observed and corrected because that's what creates suffering ultimately. Pain is not suffering. Suffering is generated when you resist what's happening in your life. So what I would typically do is go on an external level, that person's done this thing or this thing's happened, and that will affect you in a particular way because you're a human being. But what I do after that is I try to dive much deeper within myself and go, okay, what resistance is present in me or what am I being asked to learn here? Or what do I need to transform or evolve in me so this thing doesn't have the same command or weight that it, that it ha- has right now? And I find like it's everything that disturbs us or unsettles us can ultimately bring us into a deeper understanding of ourselves. So I always go to that. Okay, what can I do? What's going on in me? Let's attend to that first, clear that, do that work. And then when you return to that thing that was giving you struggle of some kind, you've noticed its powers diminished. It's really just an event, but it just has no gravity anymore. So like I recently went through something and I feel this throat thing was actually triggered by that, if I'm honest. Yeah. There was, and there's often that, you know, that debate, do, does our emotional state trigger what goes on in our body? Yeah. And I think there's an absolute correlation, whether it's one, whether it's like absolute and one for one. Sometimes you just, you know, you get unwell. You don't break your leg because there's something emotionally happening within you. Sometimes I think the accidents or things unfold. But um, yeah, so with my throat, I had to clear what was around that, what story was around that and what I was, you know, what I was being affected, how I was being affected. I had to reframe and process that. And then I felt this liberation. So I feel like that's the gift of those, those times when we feel like really disturbed is the liberation that comes with it. It's true. That liberation feeling is absolute freedom and it can be hard to get there at times, but when you do get there, it is so beautiful. A lot of people have a story that they play or they identify with that is negative, so maybe they would talk about their upbringing being bad or a trauma that's occurred. How do you deal with people that come to you with those stories to allow them to almost be reborn again in the same life? The, and you, you, you described it very well, it's a story. So consciousness itself mm-hmm. is that which is beyond mind. And in the same way, we're both wearing garments right now the mind is the veil or the garment of the soul. And so based on what that garment is will depend on, on how we perceive, how we interact, how we feel. So our consciousness is so influenced by our thought forms. And a story is simply a determination that we've made at a particular moment in time. And we get committed to those stories and they become so familiar to us and they become so encoded into our biology and our chemistry and our neural structures that they define us in a way. Like so many people mm. define themselves by, oh, I'm a cancer survivor or I'm, I'm an alcoholic or whatever it may be. Like a friend of mine, I often have a debate with him. He says I'm alcoholic and I said, I don't agree with that. I appreciate what you're saying, but I don't agree with that. Um, I say you're someone who used to have a drinking problem. 
but you're a pure being first. Don't forget that is what you are. If you want to call yourself something, call yourself that. You know, I'm this vast eternal consciousness if you want to really get to the truth. Um, so there's a history that someone commits to as defining themselves as I am this. And so that story, the beauty about it is it can be, can be retold, it can be changed based on how you perceive that moment. And I had a guy recently, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this story, but he's, he's, he's brilliant psychologically. He's got an absolutely, you know, genius mind, very uh, good at mentoring, counselling people and whatnot. And um, so we were chatting the other day, and he'd just gone through a challenging situation, and uh, I was just sort of helping him through that a little bit. And um, he, he, he was sort of referencing, and I know him very well, so he was sort of referencing some challenges he's had in childhood, and and I just asked, I said, is it okay if I just sort of, you know, take you through a process right now? And he's like, yeah, I'm up for it. Let's do it. And so what I wanted to do was liberate him from that commitment he made in his consciousness to this happened to me when I was a child and that's a really deep wound and I'll, it's going to be so much work to be free of it. And so I've said, I said I've, you've made... Uh, you've, you've formed a belief that healing takes time and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. And, and, and the message I was getting for him was it's time. It's, it can be easy and if you integrate this healing, your world is going to open up. A whole new sense of self will start to come online for you. And so I said to him, when is it okay? Like, when is it time that we can say we've done enough work on this and we can move past it and be truly here? I said, it's been a long enough time, don't you think? And he's like, yeah, actually it has. Um, and we were able for him to start to reframe that, that event and see it in a different light and bring the wisdom and power that he has on board now into that time rather than the weakness of that time affecting him now. So it's, I don't, I, I, my mind works really simply. Like I, when healing and all these like modalities for health and healing become complicated that I start to lose interest in them because I feel everything when you really reduce it down is simple and it should be simple to implement. It's not just someone with a PhD has got all the answers and then you have to consult them. So I feel that stories can just be changed if we look at what came out of it. And it's in retrospect that that can be more easily seen. In the moment, it's difficult to associate with it. But, for example, something happened to me, you know, I had some, some heartache and, you know, I, I you know, had, a, had a relationship breakup at some point and it could have gone one way, like I just fell into, oh, poor me and just broken heart. And I thought, what a gift that relationship was and to meet that person and have that dance and it wasn't for as long as my part of my psyche had, you know, hoped or committed to, but what a blessing it was just to interact. And then I went into this total love and appreciation and, and gratefulness and honestly I felt completely healed. And it was just by changing the channel from seeing it through this, these eyes through seeing it with these eyes and when I look back on that relationship, all I have is like just so much you know, appreciation for the, for that time rather than part of you longing for it to continue, etc. So I think, yeah, you have to trust in the flow of life. I believe that's a big yeah. part of being able to, to heal and to grow. Like you have to trust that there is, 
this wonderful like intelligence that's orchestrating our lives and we're just riding the wave of life and all that happens to us has some, you know, divine intent encoded into it and we can't always see it. We will later. It's so true. I feel, I feel when I ever get worried about the unknown or wonder why certain things are happening in my life, I have come to know over the years that there is a divine intelligence that governs us. And if you have faith in that, that it's a, it's a friendly intelligence that only wants the best for you. And when you take, you, you lose control rather than hold on to control and know that you're in, you're in good hands and, and everything is there because it's supposed to be there. I think it's when we go against that grain and we push for what we want as when you see the outcome not really being one to probably what you, what you want or what, what the bigger picture or wider intelligence wants for you as well. Yeah, and I feel it's... It's that dance, isn't it? Like sometimes the ego gets out of control or it starts to, you know, there's something else that starts to dominate proceedings. You know, some people see a target and then they just head at full speed for that target, missing out on all of the subtle cues that life's giving them along the way because Mm. I'm here and I'm studying law and it's this big commitment of, you know, many years, three, four, five years, however long it is, and you've got no idea how many lawyers come to me and say, Man, I don't know why I'm doing this job. I hate it. And I think, well, how did you get this far along? And they just didn't stop to pause and go, how does it feel in my emotional body to be on this journey I'm on right now? Yeah. Uh, I felt my pressure from my parents and I wanted to please them and I wanted to reach my potential. So I studied really hard, got a great TER, and then that said that number matches with studying law, etc. So sometimes, like, what's more important, I find, is just to pay attention to how you're feeling along mm. the passage. And what can be a diversion, what creates a lot of suffering is when the mind overcommits to something. Yeah. And isn't, isn't receptive anymore. Mm. So I believe that what, what's most important in life is, is the inner life. There's this balance, inner and outer. They both have virtue and they're both um, are really there to be honoured. But what I've discovered more and more and more in my life is how important the inner actually is. And I think, you know, I oscillated. I was really inwardly oriented and then I became externally oriented. Building Soma, for example, it's it's a material thing and it requires a lot of that sort of focus. But all the while it's like what keeps calling me is it's just, it's the heaven within you that's important and cultivating and creating that. Because the other things outside, they're not guaranteed to deliver it, unfortunately. And I wish it were the case. And you've, you know, you've interviewed a lot of really like wealthy, powerful, famous people. Mm. And whether you picked up on it or not, you can guarantee like some of them are like troubled. Of course, absolutely. What a society sort of idolizes, and yet you're not experiencing heaven on earth. No, I know it's it's such an interesting thing. Gary, why does meditation play such a pivotal part of a happy life? I feel it's medicine for the mind. You know, we can understand how important exercise and breathing and food is for the body, etc. So meditation yeah. for me, it's, it's like the gift to the mind. It's what helps restore the mind and clear the mind and take out 
all of the um, distortions which get imposed on it through, you know, just our daily interaction. So from a neuroscientific perspective, you know, we have the nervous system, which was essentially the seat of the soul. It determines so much of how we experience the world. Like everything that we experience through our five senses, senses affects the nervous system and the nervous system mediates everything. So as you meditate, you're calming the nervous system, bringing your body and mind into this into harmony again. You bring it back into the field from which harmony comes. Yes. And so I feel it's like this wonderful act of restoring balance again. Mm. And it also has this ability to expand, not just to, to balance, but it also expands the mind. It really starts to open it up like a, the blossoming of a flower or something like that. Just has this, yeah, this activating quality. Yes. So it calms, it expands, but it also deepens. So when you're meditating, you're diving deeper and deeper and deeper within your own self. Your, your consciousness is getting to explore itself and all the qualities and layers of itself. And without a meditation practice, it's very, very difficult to know all the dimensions of one's own being. And so if someone wants emotional intelligence... You need to get that through going through all the layers of self and getting to the deepest layer where you can observe all those qualities and, and aspects of, of your own experience. So I feel like meditation, it's such a, like a, a simple practice, but it's so powerful. So powerful. It's changed my life in so many ways and I've spoken about it a lot on the podcast. When we meditated together, you introduced me to something called rounding which I absolutely loved and, I mean, you can explain exactly what it is, but there was a bit within this practice, I remember, and I, I told you this at the time, where I, I looked over and I just, I felt so unbelievably happy and it wasn't a happiness that you just get from doing something that will bring you joy. It was such a overwhelming feeling of ecstasy and it was such a beautiful feeling and I remember I actually haven't told you this I remember looking over at you just to see what the next thing we needed to do was and you looked so happy you were like the happiest person <laughs> going around and I remember thinking to myself god Gary looks happy right now just so peaceful and just so happy can you explain a bit about what rounding is and why we were feeling so wonderfully happy from doing it? Yeah. So rounding, it, it's an ancient practice that was revived. And so it's, it's very simple in its structure. It's a specific sequence of yoga postures and there's about 14 of them and they're very easy to do and you don't need any previous experience or skill in yoga asana. Yes. That lasts about, you know, 20, 30 minutes or so. Um, and then following that, you do a, a, some pranayama, some formulated breathing just to create certain dynamics within the cerebral hemispheres of the brain. You're creating balance and coherence. And so you worked on doing these asanas, which are impacting the body primarily and the subtle body. And then you do this breath that influences the body and mind and brain. And then you meditate. And then after the meditation, you rest, lie down, and that in itself is a technique, the particular way we do it. Mm. You integrate. 
And rounding is the plural form of that act. So you do a second round, third round, fourth, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we did about five hours of practice or something consistently and yeah. without, without a break, without stopping. And you just get in this flow and it, what it does is it wakes up the bliss in a human being. As we were saying, like the foundation of what we are is not just this physical thing. Like there, there's beautiful like divinity within it. There's what we call the Anandamaya Kosha, that, that blissful layer of us. And as you do these practices, you start to get in contact with that layer and you start to feel like, oh, my God, I feel this. Like, why? And uh, if life was structured in a particularly different way, if people weren't, you know, working overtime and feeding their body stuff, they would be closer to that layer. So rounding just brings you in closer and more intimate touch with yourself, you know, yourself beyond just your normal way of, of living. And that's why we were, we were feeling so good. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> Do you believe that like attracts like and that, the, that what we bring into our lives, the people who seem to come towards us mirror who we are as people and that, if we start to change our way of being and thinking and vibrate at a certain level, we will attract more of that same level or type of person into our life or experiences. Predominantly, I would say yes, that that's the case. I think if you're a hotel, you have a certain certain clientele that comes and visits, but occasionally you'll get some some rogue that sort of manages to check into your hotel. And so life, <laughs> life can be a bit like that, where you think, why are you here? You're not my people. <laughs> it's so true. But, you know, often that's created at a different level, you know. Yes. There's something that that person can help you arrive to understanding about yourself. Mm. I feel people like that, they more... They make a cameo. They, they're not part of, you know, the eternal family. So people come and go and we tend to, um, you know, cultivate more of like-minded people around us, which makes sense. Um, yeah. But my, my business partner, for example, um, and I hate saying that word, he's just my best mate, but he, um, he talks about um, in his background, the corporate world and his business, he, like the, the value of tension, how important tension is. And so tension, it's not always like on like. It's differing worldviews, but when you put them together, they can antagonise one another or they can expand one another. So I often feel that we don't always want like. We want similar direction, but we don't want same. And so often people that challenge us most... Because me and my business partner, we used to have like diametrically opposed views on particular things. Most of the stuff we would meet on and then we would be like, hang on, I can't believe you think that. And he'd be like, I can't believe you think that. And then, you know, we both just sort of would soften a bit and merge with the other person's view. And then we would, we found like we would just meet in the middle. Yes. So I find it's, yeah, it's, it's multi-layered, but definitely the person you are, that, you know, that's radiating at some level. And that's communicating with the field of life. And you find that birds of a feather, they tend to flock together. It's true. It's so true. Mm. And if we go back to that that thing you were proposing earlier, that's looking, okay, why is this showing up in my life? Like, 
what does this say about me? How have I called this in? Or what do I need to learn or graduate out of or understand or discover, you know, about myself or whatever it may be? I can relate to something, you know, I went through fairly recently. It was a person turned up and it was quite... um, it was quite awkward and uncomfortable in the beginning. And in the end, I just sort of sat back and thought, Gaz, what do you need to learn here? What's, yeah. what's life inviting you into? And then when I just sat and merged with that question, the answer just came immediately. And then when I, once I received that, that insight, everything changed. And then the tension disappeared. And I realised this person came to show me something I need to upgrade in myself. And now we've got a great relationship. But we were, we were, we were, yeah, we weren't having much fun at all, you know. So I always feel like it's like self first because often yeah. we're like, oh, that person did this or they're like that and they need to change and that's the really, that's the, I don't believe that's not the right way to go about it, self first. How important is it to live a life through love and not fear? Yeah, it's, um, well, everyone knows that the Beatles wrote about it and it's very important, obviously. But the challenge I find is, like, where is that love? Is it just a concept or is it an experience? And the challenge I believe we have as people is we know that we should be more loving and kind and compassionate and love is the way, etc. But it really depends on what centre you're operating out of as a human being. And you could think of, you know, we have a physical body, Vedic wisdom extends deeper into it and says that there are different energy centres in the body and there are different aspects or layers to us and we have an egoic layer. So if you're coming at the world from your egoic sense, you'll be defensive and you'll try to um, rise above others and you'll you know, you'll operate in a particular way which isn't serving all. So the love won't be there as much as it could be. Or if you're someone that just wants to... um, What sexual gratification, for example, coming from that centre of your body, you're not going to be making love to people so much. You're just going to be getting, you know, some some pleasure of different kind... Um, So I find the biggest challenge that human beings have is making that transition from being dominated mostly, our energy is caught up in our thinking minds, dropping into our hearts. And so it's one thing to want to be loving, etc., but it has to be founded on your consciousness being located and grounded in your heart. And then once you're grounded in that, you can't help but be loving. You can't be in your heart and be mean to someone or be selfish or be unkind, etc. So it's when you get into those moments of the heart that you just naturally are that way. I would say love shouldn't so much be conceptual but rather experiential. And to get there, its practices, I find, are are critical to it. And, you know, for example, um, there are... There are different ways to evoke the heart. When we fall in love, the heart is invoked. Um, For example, when you listen to music, you can find it, it it starts to affect the heart. When you think of a loved one, 
and how dear they were to you. You can feel it affects the qualities of the heart. Um, when you take certain plants, you know, certain uh, modern-day drugs uh, like ecstasy, for example, um, I believe that invokes certain loving qualities in a person. So it's that, that centre we need to activate. That needs to be like part of what our culture reorients itself to, incorporates into the picture. Because I feel what's happened to us is we think too much. We approach life from our mind. And when we approach life from our mind, we're calculating and we're planning and we're projecting. We're not just appreciating. To give you an example of this, I remember reading something Ramdas wrote. Most people are familiar with him in his wonderful teachings. He said, when you look at a tree, you just absorb and you love the tree and you merge with the tree and you see its beauty. And you don't start nitpicking the tree and say, why aren't your branches like this? So why don't you change? Why wouldn't we don't try to make them different? We just have appreciation and awe for that creation. Yet when we get into a relationship, what can happen is we love the tree initially, but then we want to change the tree. And then the love starts to go, see ya. Because love, yeah. love and judgment, they don't coexist particularly well. Mm. And when you're in your heart, all you feel is that. You just feel this like, I'm, 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 I'm merging with that. I'm enjoying that and I'm loving that. So I, I think to answer the question, it's the dominance of the mind which gets in the way of someone being able to love. And there was a beautiful quote by Rumi perhaps, and he said, My, your task is not to seek love but to remove all the barriers you build up within yourself against it. Mm, it's beautiful. And that's in the mind. That's the stories yeah. that we were chatting about, all those layers, all those things of resistance and dejection and all those kind of foolish tales that we've, we're holding on to that stop us from being able to go deeper into our hearts. There's a beautiful story that I've heard you tell before that I'd love you to tell today. And it's about when you were surfing down at Watergoes Beach in Byron. And I think it was a moment where you really gave a lot of gratitude and love to the ocean and, and what you can tell us what happened after that. Yeah. So another story comes to mind just while it's here, I'll talk about it because like, like many people, like I'm here running this Thing and I've got a life that's got a lot of moving parts like everybody. And so at the end of this retreat, I just, I just sort of spontaneously did like a gratitude exercise. It sounds so corny and I feel like an idiot for saying it, but <laughs> play this track and then just got people to connect with, you know, what brings them joy, what they're grateful for, what they love about their life. And, you, you know, we've been in this very deep space, so it's so easy to connect. And kind of did a look around the room and everyone's just hands on their hearts smiling and crying and I was and we all went into that space but I did it too and I just sat there and and just let whatever come and then my mum came and I was just swimming with my mum for as long as the exercise when I came out I was just a total mess uh, and uh, they were all Aww. sharing their stories and then it came to me and I just cried in front of everybody and I just realized wow I love That's my mum you know that connection I have with my mum it is so special but it's easy to forget it, right? It's easy to get busy yeah. and to do stuff and you transact with life. Um, so anyway, getting back to your story, it was in, you know, I really hunt for those moments, really seek those sacred moments out. And I believe that they touch us all, but we move on from them too quickly, whether it be mm. that moment where you're looking into your daughter's eyes or 
where you're looking at the, that tree or the sunset or whatever it may be, like that's a sacred moment. It's very, very mm-hmm. precious. Like the amount of work that went into creation to have that, you know, billions of years of evolution brought you into this divine moment. But we move on too quick. So anyway, when I went down to the beach that time, often surfers, I describe them as being addicts sometimes because they've mm-hmm. got to get their fix. They've got to go out there and got to get a certain number of waves or else they're not happy. And then you get a good wave and then part of your brain goes, that was great, let's get another one. And so you just keep wanting more and more from the ocean and it becomes, you know, romanticised surfing, but it can also be like an MMA fight out there. It can be like jumping in like a, a nest with snakes, like every surfer becomes really selfish and really wants to compete and just dominate and get what they want and doesn't care for their fellow man. So when I was standing on the beach at Wadiga, I had my, my longboard and I ride a shortboard and a longboard, depends on the conditions. But I stood on the beach and I just looked around and I thought, this, what, how, how blessed am I just to be standing on this beach about to have this experience? And I said, I don't want anything from you, Ocean. All I want to do is give you, you know, my, just give you my thanks for just for existing and bringing so much joy to all of our lives. And so I paddled out into the ocean, not wanting anything. And I was just paddling around and, and just, just in the flow of like joy. Didn't, whether I got a wave or didn't get a wave, didn't matter. But then sure enough, the, these waves start rolling in and, and these dolphins start launching out of the, the sea and riding these waves. And then this wave comes to me and then no one else caught it. I'm like, man, I'm gonna catch this thing. So I turn around and I stand up and then these dolphins are surfing this wave and they're jumping out either side of my board, so much so that I could have leaned over and caught one of them. And then they're swimming underneath my board, crisscrossing underneath me and then diving beside me. Beautiful. Was, I was laughing my head off. It was so ecstatic and blissful. And I thought, wow. And it went on for a long time. And I pulled off and thought, gosh, you rewarded me. I didn't want anything and look what you've done. And then I paddled back out and then another wave came and it happened again. That had never happened to me ever. And it happened twice in a couple of minutes. And it happened to no one else in the surf. And it was, it was phenomenal. And, you know, dolphins, they're highly sensitive creatures. Yes. Um, so I can't help but think that was either a coincidence or that was life saying thank you for appreciating us. Oh, it was 100% the second one. And I think as well, when you're, when you're giving gratitude and you're, you're coming from such a heartfelt centre, then again, it goes back to what we were saying about like attracting like. And you have the experience of these beautiful dolphins that are swimming with you because of the way that you're projecting your love onto the ocean. Yeah. And that it like extends to all of life, right? But we go, I'm not on the mm. beach now, I'm just at home and our gratitude disappears. You know what I mean? Or we get in familiar patterns. Spiritual practice is really about correcting those patterns. It's really Mm. about nothing else but clearing and opening up positive pathways and proceeding along those. And that's all it is, whether it be in an an action or whether it be in in a mental correction. You say this is the dimension that is ultimately sacred, not seeking anywhere else. Can you explain that to us? Yeah. Um, I think like a lot of people, I was 
caught up in this idea. I don't know where, it, I think it comes just really, it's embedded in our culture that mm. in your life you should pursue these things, money, career, materialism, having big house, marriage, etc. Like it's so part of our cultural story. Yeah. And I, I really bought into that as a kid. Like I was, I remember being in my room just, counting money in my piggy bank going, I'm going to have heaps of this one day and that's just what it's all about. Like I genuinely believe that. And as I went further down the path, I realised I don't don't think that's actually what it's about. But everyone else still thinks it is. Okay, I guess I'll just keep following the crowd. And where I've arrived at today, um, and I've got nice stuff, you know, I've got a nice place and all of that. And I realised none of it, it doesn't change me. And I wish it did. I really wish that that's all that we needed to have a, you know, nice furnishings and a house and this and that. And it's annoying kind of that it doesn't. But I, when I was in India for the first time, and I'd always heard it was a unique culture, but you see people who are destitute, yet they're very happy. And I, I remember seeing this one woman in traffic and I was in Delhi, big, you know, it's, it's a big city. I don't, I don't particularly yeah. like it. Like I, could, I couldn't wait to leave the place. So busy, polluted, like about as far away from where, where I want to be located as can be. But anyway, we landed in Delhi. We did some stuff there. We're riding a little rickshaw around these little cars, three-wheel cars, and going through traffic, we arrive at like a, a red light and there's this beautiful young girl, but clearly very, very poor. And she's got a, a little baby on her back who was either her sister or brother, um, I couldn't see the, the baby's face. But anyway, I looked into her eyes and I thought, wow, there's something exquisite about, about that face. And she looked genuinely happy and I thought, how can that be? She's standing in, in the hot midday sun, traffic, she's scratching out a living, she's, you know, as broke as anyone I've seen. Yet there was, I looked in her eyes and I thought, she is genuinely, genuinely in love with the divine and with life. And then after I'd done all the things I was doing in India and other places, and then I came back to Delhi and then I, I, you know, was just there for one night and made my way back to the airport the next day, I bumped into this woman again. Oh, my God. By chance, somewhere else. And then I saw her again and I was like, oh, my God, here you are again. What are the chances? You know, millions of people there are. And in her eyes, I was just like, wow, you have really found it. You have connected with what life is genuinely about. And for them, their mind hasn't made that commitment and they haven't classified my, my like, enjoyment and my happiness in life depends on these things being present. None of that was there for her. It was just the joy in my life is dependent on existence alone. Mm. And that, that for me was probably the most powerful teaching I got out of India without it being a formal teaching that you receive from, you know, a guru or something. Um, and it's still with me today. And, you, and it's taken me this long to get to where I am now to, to realise what, what she realised and how unimportant all this material stuff we put so much energy and emphasis on, it isn't. Like, it's important to have a comfortable home and all of that. Yeah. Um, to be able to take your kids to the movies and, you know, to pay school fees mm-hmm. and things like that. But the emphasis should be on something else, like 
That's yeah. a part of life, but the truth and the and the real reason we're here is to become self-realized and to become connected, to, to experience our connection with that dimension of life. I know in my life when I've experienced that, and it's absolutely not through external external items, that's where the true bliss lies. And these two things, like not antagonistic, and I think that's the mistake that's been made. Like it's like it's you you can't have you know joyful yeah. sacredness. You know, and and um, you know, material stuff—they they can't live in the same home, and that's that's garbage. And I feel like I'm in the position now where I have both those things. But I have yeah. to tell you, because I just finished renovating this house, it was huge, huge effort. And I got all this beautiful furniture made that my brother designed, bespoke for every house. We 3D modeled it. We got everything right. He's a perfectionist. It's all here and I love it and I love really nice things. Like I've got a basket that was weaved in a village in Africa from the reeds from the river and I just look at it and I, it's so imperfect but that's yeah. it's, it's so amazing. Like I look at it and I think, wow, I connect with the story and where it came from. But at the same time, I'm just like, if this stuff wasn't here and I wasn't here, I'd be like, but it's okay. Yeah. And I wish I would look at that basket and go, you just bring me heaven, but you don't. It's just, it's a nice basket to look at, you know, and I've got a nice view and all that sort of stuff. But what I realise is it's it's mining the inner gold. Mm. It's that which is just most important. Like it, people have got to do that more and more and more. Well, at least I do anyway, you know, because I think nothing else makes sense to me. And that's why I guess no. I'm on the path I'm on because it's really about <laughs> augmenting that those sacred moments and making that your life, making those Absolutely. moments become hours, become days, become your existence. And that's really the quest that, that I'm on to, to just really augment that. Yes, it's so true. Gary, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? I think that I've, I've seen it. Um, I, I, I think I really appreciate my three gurus, my dad, my mum, and, and my spiritual teacher. And I think my mum, she showed me softness, care, love, devotion, and how you always maintain a positive frame of mind, irrespective of what's happening. She, she's the master of that, and I, I'm still trying to be more like her. And then there's my dad, who really taught me to be creative, entrepreneurial, to carve your own path, mm. to you know, shove it to authority, don't follow the crowd, don't do as you're told, um, don't follow the rules. I, I love him for that, you know. So he created this rebellion in me and my mum created this, like, tenderness. She, and then my guru really honed my wisdom and my spiritual understanding. So I think it's their three examples that I really draw down from. Yeah. What's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? To stop expecting life to do what it does. And I'll explain what that means. Like I had this romantic idea that once I go on the spiritual path, I let go of all this stupid shit I'm doing, I'll start to feel like I'm really connected and then life will just become smooth. And I'm still, I'm still having to work on this, if I'm honest. Like mm. life, it's just like it's, it's a ruckus. It's, it doesn't know how to be smooth or steady or consistently calm. And I think there was part of me which is a real, I, I love peace and I love like things being smooth. I love things to be easy. And what I've had to like really adjust within myself is the fact that life don't do that. Mm. 
And the reason you suffer is because life does one thing and you want it to do another and you don't accept it doing what it do, is doing. So I'm constantly like upgrading, like, okay, life's meant to be a shit show and it's like meant to be a beautiful mess. And that's, that's how it goes. So I'm still mm. like, that's, that's a pretty big lesson for me. What's your greatest hope for society today? I hope that we don't ruin the planet, which we're living on, that we that this six mass extinction event, um, you know, we, we find solutions to, to heal the earth so that our children and their children and all those to come have, have a, you know, a Garden of Eden like we were born into to enjoy. So that, that, that would be one of my biggest concerns that, you know, the, the, we were desecrating this wonderful planet so my hope is that we learn to live in a sustainable, in an enriching way. You know, we can actually contribute to the glory of the earth rather than just extract. And that would, I believe, combine like wisdom with technological advancement when, those, then, when the heart and technology can merge. Beautiful. Gary, you know that I am a big fan of prayers. What is your favourite prayer? Loka samasta sukino bhavantu. And it means may all beings everywhere be happy and free. May all beings know peace. And may um, the thoughts, words and actions of my own life contribute to the happiness and freedom for all. What is a life of greatness to you? I feel a great life is one in which you push through your limitations and your fears and you dream big but listen big. Mm. You know, you listen really to, to your nature and you live in harmony with that nature. To me, that, that's greatness and that's not always big. I love people on a small stage. Like I feel my mum is really living a life of greatness. Yes. She's so wonderful and beautiful and humble and supportive and caring and all of that. Yes, she's not out there doing all these massive things, but she's doing massive things in her own way. So I feel it's that uh, a life in tune with, with one's heart. That's for me greatness. Gary Goro, thank you for opening my eyes to all of your wisdom and thank you for the beautiful chat today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure. For more inspiration and wisdom, I would love you to join me and my community on Instagram at a Life of Greatness podcast. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, and watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. Love what you heard? Then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.